Hey everyone, welcome to another fire podcast. So as you know, I've been hung up lately on the coronavirus and the U.S. response to the coronavirus and different perspectives on opening up and things. So I'm going to continue along in that manner. I'm going to discuss uh, Balaji and Pompliano had a really awesome podcast, really good. Everyone Stop and go and listen to that. You will learn a lot, some really good perspective on uh, the U.S. response to it. I'm going to cover some things on that. Then as the show progresses, I'm going to discuss uh, differences in opinions that are evolving and then also how what, what is happening with the U.S. Did we give up with our response? Did we give up in figuring out a way to fix this problem? or for future problems. So take a listen. You can follow me at tstuch.com, T-S-T-U-C-H.com. I've got a new shirt up there, some new merch. Check it out. It's really funny. It's a Joe Biden shirt. Um, It's anti-Joe. It's an anti-Joe Biden shirt. It's really funny. He's sitting there with his tongue out. Um, You can like and subscribe on YouTube, Taylor Space Stutch, T-A-Y-L-O-R Space Stutch, S-T-U-C-H. Follow me on Twitter, tstuch1, T-S-T-U-C-H1. And you can also follow me on... Instagram, Taylor Radio, T-A-Y-L-O-R-R-A-D-I-O. Thank you. Have a great day and enjoy the episode. So I was listening to this uh, very interesting podcast between Pompliano um, and a guy named Balaji. I talked a little bit about it in the last podcast, but in this podcast, it's really good. Everyone should go listen to it. They covered, um, you know, they talked about a lot of aspects of the the whole environment that we're in right now. Um, you know, obviously coronavirus, but also uh, maybe some differences between how the U.S. and China handled it. Um, kind of what the United States is facing, what situation we're in, and it also shed a lot of light on who is Balaji. So I have been following this guy on Twitter since about January, February when the coronavirus situation really started uh, exploding out of China. And I was – you know, it, it, obviously the people – what caught my radar were the early – the people that were warning about this early because um, the people that were warning about it early for the most part, unless there was – there were some po- people that were getting political, so they kind of jumped on the bandwagon just because they thought it would hurt Trump. But the people that had a more – a deeper understanding of the potential risk that we face, uh, those are the guys that caught my attention. So guys like uh, Joe Norman, I didn't really know much about him before, but he was a – he his logic behind – Quick and fast movement was good, really solid. Uh, same with um, Nassim Taleb and some others. Well, this guy Balaji has also been a strong advocate for taking good and strong action early to mitigate this whole thing. Now, some things he talks about. He talks a lot about technology. For Balaji, it's all about technology um, enabling us to move forward with this thing. 
So he talks about things like vaccine. Um, uh, he talks about vaccines a lot, but also us being able to develop the technologies to, uh, you, know, all, you know, more than just vaccines. It's vaccines, it's treatments, it's technology to keep people safe, um, all kinds of things, right? And what I – this podcast with him and Pompliano – Pomp is a, a big Bitcoin advocate, a smart guy, spent time in the military. Uh, Balaji's VC, you know, he's involved in VC, Bitcoin. He started companies. He sold companies. He's made a lot of money. Very smart guy, very intelligent. You can tell this by his, uh, you know, just by the shit he talks about. Um, and what I mean is when you listen to him, you don't get the impression at all like he's this super pompous, uh, you know, academic type, not one of those intellectuals, but he's very down to earth, very practical, but also very intelligent. And those are the kind of guys that really catch my attention. So this guy is uh, was discussing how they talked about a lot of things, how the world will be different, how he thinks that in green zone, you know, the world will be kind of divided into green zones and red zones. And I can see that happening. I could see that happening where essentially you have places like a, a Taipei or a, not a Taipei, a Taiwan would be like a green zone, right? Where they were able to control it. Maybe like South Korea is a green zone, Japan green zone. Uh, maybe a couple countries in Europe are green zones. But then you've got like the United States is a red zone. And he talked about how um, in green zones that ultimately – You'll have more freedom in green zones depending, of course, on the type of government. But in those areas, you'll be able to go about a more normal type of life. Whereas in red zones, you'll have to deal with the pressures of um, – you'll have to deal with the economic and political pressures of potential shutdowns and health crises and emergencies, which could end up being more harsh to uh, individual liberties and freedoms than the areas that have the virus under control. And you know, there's a lot more into that that I, I thought was super interesting and the way he described it. He goes into detail, very, very worthwhile listening to. The differences between countries that can get the coronavirus under control and the countries that cannot. Now, to push back on some of the stuff he says, one thing I don't like that he talks about a lot is vaccines, um, how we need a vaccine, we need a vaccine. I, I understand that. I understand that. And, and I guess one of my problems is is that uh, – and he brought this up in the podcast about trusting – is that you know our institutions, even though they're wrong a lot, they're not always wrong. And this is the thing about vaccines is that there are – I do believe there is a danger, at least some danger in taking vaccines and especially the way that they're uh, done now. Right, I've seen the vaccine schedule. It's been a while since I took a look, but I looked at it last year, and you know you can see comparisons between the vaccines people took this year, like the what kids get now, what kids took twenty years ago, or when I was a baby. When I was a baby, the vaccine list was a fraction of what it is today. I think it was like maybe about a third as long, and so you know there's there's lots of reports of of adverse effects from vaccines and. You know, I also don't trust the elites to a degree. So it's like, look, I I don't want them putting something in me that could make me go retarded. You know that uh, because I don't I don't trust the institutions 
that maybe I would have trusted 20 years ago. Now, of course, 20 years ago, I was a child, so I wouldn't have been able to, but you get my point is I, I, w- I don't want to rely on a vaccine because that means I have to trust institutions that I may not necessarily want to trust. Uh, but as Balaji pointed out, we can't just lock down. Like locking down isn't just a viable strategy. You can't just lock down and say, ah, okay, everything's good. You got to have a plan. You have to have a way to get out of this, a way to move forward. And that's what we're really struggling with in the United States and other countries across the world. Um, one thing, though, I wanted to really touch on that he made a very good point. So I keep talking about uncertainty, right? I've talked about this a lot, that uncertainty, in my opinion, uncertainty is the reason why – uncertainty is the reason why I advocated for lockdowns. Um, or advocated for social distancing and still advocate for people being careful. It's not because of what we know. It's because of what we don't know. And Balaji made an extremely good point uh, when talking about the uncertainty here. He made a good point. He said there are some things we, you know, we think we kind of know, right, like the mortality rate. There are things that we understand about that. You know, like, okay, it looks like mostly older people are dying. It looks like the majority of people who get it are not going to die. You know, of course, the overwhelming majority. But he made a really good point. He said, you know, we hear stories and he, he likes to gather evidence about um, stories about young people that are being sick for like eight, nine, ten weeks. And you can find that. There are many stories written up and people are on Twitter uh, talking about being in their 30s, early 40s, early, mid 30s and late 30s who have gotten this disease and have been extremely ill, very, very ill for like eight to ten weeks. And we also don't know the long-term effects of that. But what he pointed out was when people look at him and they say, look, dude, this is anecdotal evidence, he says, no, 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 you don't get it. It's not that, okay, yeah, it's anecdotal evidence, but he made a really good point, and it was this, that when you talk to people and you get these anecdotal stories, it helps you define how you want to collect your data. We might be missing important data about the disease because we're not looking for it. We don't know what we're missing because we don't know what we're not looking for. So if we only focus on mortality, then that's what we're looking at, if that makes sense. He made the comment that if you don't get – because you know, he's been in the tech sector and he said, look, if you don't talk to your customers, then you, you could be data blind. right? You don't know what you're not collecting data on. And he made a good example. He talked about how um, if you develop an app or something where, say, maybe it's like an internet browser and you find out that like for a certain percent of people using a certain operating system, the internet browser is crashing, uh, you might not know that from your data that you have collected. You might only have how many people are using it, when they're using it, so on. But in order for you to figure out how to collect certain data, you got to ask questions about the user experience. And that's what he talked about with the coronavirus, that we don't understand everything about this virus because we don't know what we don't know. We need to collect more information and figure out what we should be looking for, like long-term damage, short-term damage, how long are young people out for. Very good questions, very good questions. One thing that seems to be fairly 
I don't want to say common, but something that I have read a few times with people that have gotten the sickness but didn't have to go to the hospital was that they were dealing with um, a with waves of fever. So they would go maybe a week or two where they would be feverish and then they thought they were getting better and then it turns out they weren't getting better because then like a few days later they would feel sick again. And these are, are things that you're not going to really understand enough about some of these symptoms or about how this works on people until we collect more data. But I keep reading this, for example, from people like Cernovich. I like Cernovich with a lot of the stuff he talks about. Um, But on the coronavirus thing, and I think I understand it, I think part of uh, his situation has been you know, he was an early warning. He, he warned about coronavirus early, but he was also really, really quick to reverse course on coronavirus. He was really quick to kind of, I don't want to say totally reverse course, but really quick to be like, okay, now we need to open up. You know, like, okay, well, you know, everybody, we've got this thing coming, but now we need to open up. But it wasn't, it's hard to explain. But if you've been following Cernovich like I have, um, his his coronavirus um, output is very much all over the map, at least for me. It's very hard for me to follow exactly what he thinks about it. And even just yesterday, he was posting some stuff about, and I think this is a very common sentiment, that, okay, the coronavirus is dangerous. It's, it's serious if you're like elderly, if you have comorbidities. Right. We understand some of that. But once again, and he actually took a shot at Balaji for, um, you know, Balaji talking shit about our response. I'll go into that in a minute. But he was parroting some of the same things that some people talk about over and over again. Like, look, we know the death rate. We know this. We know it affects people like this. We know that it hit it hit harder in New York. But what we really don't know is we don't we actually don't understand that that well, right? Nobody can actually give a precise answer of why it hit New York so heavily. Was mass transit a big factor? Probably, probably. Was the fact that they live on top of each other so closely together, that was probably a big factor not only in New York but also in China as well. Now, that being said, everyone's using their bro science data, their bro science hypotheses to say like, oh, well, I think it's because of the subway. And, oh, okay, you know, we know it's different in California than it is in New York, so why are we keeping California closed? These, I understand that. We, we see differences, but that doesn't mean that we understand how and why these differences are occurring. And this is also one reason why I think we, it's best for us to pursue a cautious approach. I know I keep beating this over and over again, but it's because I keep seeing from like very well-known people and I keep seeing it more and more on the news and people around me that the idea of the virus is basically like, hey, it's not a problem. Now it's like, look, now what's what I don't like is that it went from like, oh, it's not as bad as we thought to, okay, the data is in. Right now, the data is in when it's just not honest. The way I see it is like this. The data is not in. We legitimately do not understand a lot about this virus, but we have to realize something. We're going to take a risk. 
we, ha- we, we are faced with some trade-offs. If we keep the economy locked down, then people – there will be a massive spike in poverty. People will die from supply chain breakdowns. We can't let that happen. We can't let the entire economy collapse because that's how people survive as well. So it's a trade-off. How much health and how much um, – you know how much health are we going to possibly lose in order to maintain survival at least for the short at least for the short term that seems to be kind of the trade-off we're dealing with and any honest person should know that that is the trade-off we are dealing with this is not so simple as you just open up the economy it's not going to hurt you know younger people uh, the bottom line is we don't know if it's not going to hurt younger people and i don't like to speculate um, because I don't frankly know what could possibly happen with this virus, but there are things that have showed up, shown up, right? For example, in China, that looks like the virus had affected some male's ability uh, to be fertile, like it fucked up some guys. It looks like it has messed up some men's ability to, I guess, create viable sperm or something, where now they're no longer going to be able to uh, reproduce. Um, it, with some kids, it may or may not be affecting them in particular way. And what worries me, or I don't want to say I'm particularly worried, but what I don't want to happen, what I would not like to see, but what could happen is we let the virus go, but what the worst part is is that everybody becomes cynical. Everybody becomes cynical about the virus that, hey, it's not that bad. It's not really going to be an issue. We end up having still a pretty high death rate to what we would normally see every year, but it's not the end of the world. But then we have another run through of the virus, but it's changed. It's morphed. We don't know how it's changed, but it has changed. And we don't know what effects it will have on the society if, one, you've already had it. Right? Does that mean you're better off if you've had it? Or what if you got it in you know, this year and then it has a mutation comes around next year, you get it, and it's even more lethal because of some you know, way that it interacts with your body? We don't know if that's the case or not. Now, I don't know if that's even a viable scenario. Um, I'm just throwing out there that there are so many things that we don't understand. We don't understand the long-term consequences of the virus. But like I've said, I also think we have to get back to work. I've, I've talked a million times about you know, what I think. Um, I think we should have cautious opens. Um, and something that Balaji and Pomp, Pomp talked about on their podcast I thought was really good was basically the way Balaji described uh, society. And you know, I don't endorse everything he says, but he brought up some interesting points here was that in areas – Once again, in areas that are red zones like, say, the United States and Europe where maybe some countries in Europe where they don't have it under control, like we don't have it under control, right? We're just going to let it go. We're just going to let it spread. And as a result of that, if we have more and more spread, if it does get worse, right, if we do have a situation where there are spikes in deaths in certain parts of the country or there are adverse effects on younger parts of the population, what will happen is the country will be dealing with intermittent types of lockdowns and health crises throughout the area, which will put like even more stress on the systems than had we been able to fix it or eradicate it. And um, I hope that does not happen. But Uh, It was interesting. I want to briefly pivot to a situation where 
Cernovich made a point about how, you know, during World War II and other wars, you know, it, the United States or like countries in Europe, we continued fighting, right? We just continued, like people's lives continued as normal, even though, you know, not as normal, but as normal as possible, even though we were still in epic wars or fighting in this, that, and the other. And uh, my response to that was like, yes, but they fought it. But they fought it. See, the problem with the virus situation is that we're trying to go back to normal but without fighting it. And that is actually because Cernovich uh, kind of came at Balaji, but I'm on Balaji's side on this argument that Balaji has pointed out that we've essentially given up. In the United States, lots of people are trying to give up. Like they so desperately don't want their lives to change at all at all, that we are saying no to even the smallest amount of mitigation, like even wearing a mask. Like imagine if it was, uh, okay, so real quick, I saw a video on TikTok where a guy goes into Costco without a mask and the guy, one of the workers at Costco says, hey, if you want to shop here, you got to wear a mask. And the guy was refusing and they said, okay, well then you got to go. You got to get out and they kicked him out of the store and they took his stuff. You know, he didn't pay for it. Um, and they just returned his stuff to where it was going to go. And the guy was acting all pissed off and upset. And it's like that is an example of these people. Some people are so desperate to bring life back to the way it was. They don't even want to fight the situation at all. And that's what I mean with Cernovich versus the Balaji thing is that in my opinion, Cernovich's analogy is off. It's off kilter, right? I actually agree with Balaji that – America has given up, and he's not the only one that said that. It's funny. Joe Norman actually was on top of that a couple weeks ago. He was saying, look, we live in a country where people are just giving up. People are saying, look, I honestly, I'm just tired of waiting. I want to go back to normal, so fuck it. We're just going to let the virus go. That is the honest feeling that many people see. That is the honest sentiment that many people feel is – Honestly, man, I'm tired of this thing. You know, not enough people are dying for me to care, and not enough people look seem to be effective for me to care. So I'm just going to give up. And it's this giving up attitude that I think has surprised some people. I said in a, I think it might have been the last podcast I talked about how, um, I think it was Balaji as well, who had described how in the past, we would have, you know, if you look at the, the Manhattan Project, if you look at the space program, if you look at some major, uh, major American projects that were pushed by the government, in the past we could get them done. But now we don't have the same people. We don't have the same level of competent leadership. Uh, as I've said previously, the incompetence of our current leadership and elites in this country has been exposed. And we are run and being led by a bunch of mostly incompetent morons. Now, as I've said previously, I am not an advocate for an expansion of big government state power. But with what is within their power, they've already got a shit ton of power. So why is it that the uh, we couldn't figure out a way to get testing? Why couldn't we innovate? Why couldn't we partner with companies to get shit done? Right now, maybe it also has to do with the fact 
that so much of our manufacturing has been outsourced. And maybe that has hindered our ability to respond to something like this. Because I could not, I'll be straight, it is absolutely fascinating. It is fascinating that when this crisis started, I'll tell you what, when it started, I keep repeating myself, I don't know why, I was blown away that we were going to run low on PPE because we had to get it from China. That was mind-blowing. Never in my lifetime would I have thought if you would have said, hey, all of our PPE, almost all of it, is manufactured in China, and when this virus breaks out, we are going to need China to make all of our stuff for us. So therefore, um, our ability to respond is going to be limited. Had you told me that 10 years ago, I would have said, no way, bullshit. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But how do you innovate when you don't even have production capacity? How do you do that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you do that. And I think that might be one of our biggest problems. And it goes back to something that I've discussed before. You need to look, if you're curious about our, our production manufacturing, look into somebody like uh, Peter Thiel. He discusses this, how <clears throat> we have, we're, we're not innovating at the physical level anymore. We're, innov we're innovating at, in the digital space, which is having an effect on our lives, but we're not really innovating in the physical world, in the world of physics as much as, um, as we used to. And I have a hypothesis and it might not just be mine. I have to go back and do some listening and reading of Peter Thiel. But um, I believe a partially that has to do with our, new, our model of economic growth, which has been globalism. Since we've shifted from uh, innovation in order to drive economic growth, which would be like inventing new things, right? Like inventing the car, inventing, you know, inventing the steam engine, inventing the combustion engine, inventing the car, inventing, you know, new structural steels and materials. And since we're not relying on these types of things to drive the economy as much anymore, and we're just saying, hey, we're just going to trade with everybody. Everyone's just going to trade for economic growth. Well, we're not innovating. And we have outsourced in order to keep our economy going instead of innovating materials and methods of production and manufacturing, we just decided we'll make things cheaper, increase profits in the short term by moving things overseas. And this has left our innovation abilities or capacities in the dust. This is, this is one of my hypotheses, that this is one reason why we find ourselves in this mess. Why, you know, I think Peter Thiel is correct, how we don't see the innovation in the physical space and how Balaji's very disappointed, right? He's in, I'm really riding on him. I'm, I'm riding his D because I think he's right. He, the thing is, he's living in a, a pre, uh, he's living in a world where America truly is the most innovative country. I don't know if that's the case right now. I, I think that we've been living off of, we've really been living off of our past wealth and our past innovation to carry us into the future and this coronavirus situation demonstrated that at a government level, at a private level, at all these different levels, we are not innovating, we are not figuring out a way to beat this virus. And I think this is part of the frustration. I think this is part of the frustration with 
um, people that know that we can't stay in lockdown. For example, when I talk about you know Balaji or Joe Norman or Nassim Taleb or all these other guys, a lot of these guys know that uh, you know indefinite lockdown is not going to solve the problem. You have to have lockdown followed by systems put in place to fix the situation. You know, uh, Joe Norman, for example, is not a technology guy. Um, he's a homesteader. But he had some really good ideas from the start. It wasn't innovation in terms of technology, but it was innovation in terms of method, which he was like, look, if we close, if we stop national travel, which might sound draconian, but if you say, hey, you can't fly from New York to Texas, let Texas deal with their situation. Let New York deal with their situation. Let Florida deal with their situation. If we create boundaries around states and cities, then it can allow those states and cities to move freely. So, for example, um, if Houston or if Texas says, hey, we want to remain 100% open, then it goes, okay, Texas, you can stay 100% open. You just can't go out of Texas, right? So you can do everything you want. Okay, so it's like it's a trade-off is if you want everybody to move freely throughout the country, then everybody's in these strange lockdowns. However, if you want to close some kind of national travel for a, for a st period of time, you can allow people to move freely on a local level. And even though they can't move freely on a national level, they can move freely on a local level. I've discussed this before. But there's all these different things that we could have tried to do for this situation that we didn't do. And I don't know <clears throat> I don't know what this says about us going forward. But I do echo the sentiment I am slightly disappointed in our inability to innovate through this crisis. And you know, whatever that means, whether it be, you know, looking at therapeutics, um, whether it be looking at filtering systems, whether it be looking at uh, new ways to organize businesses to keep customers going in and out. Some of that has happened for sure, but you know, the innovation has been lacking, but it, it will be interesting to see how it goes. So that's all I got for today. You can follow me on my website, tstuch.com, T-S-T-U-C-H.com, uh, Twitter, tstuch1. You can now buy my shirt at tstuch.com. Um, subscribe and like me on YouTube, Taylor Stutch, and that is it. Thank you.